This is Transmission Interrupted, the podcast series from NEETEC, the National Emerging Special Pathogens Training and Education Center. Welcome to Transmission Interrupted from NEETEC. Hello, and thanks for joining us on Transmission Interrupted, a podcast series from NEETEC. My name is Jill Morgan, and I'm a nurse at Emory University Hospital in Atlanta, and I'm joined by... Trish Tennell from New York City from Health and Hospitals Bellevue. For those of you who are joining us today, I'm going to give you a little background on Jill and I. We've both been nurses for over 25 years, and we've taken care of everything from Ebola to COVID. So today, you're coming with us down that yellow brick road for the second in a series of viruses, mutations, and variants, oh my. Yeah, and if you're not familiar with NETEC, our mission is to increase the capability of the United States public health and healthcare systems to safely and effectively manage individuals with suspected and confirmed special pathogens in cooperation with the CDC and funded by ASPR, the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response. In our first episode, we talked about the basics of viruses and mutations. Last time, when we talked about the basics of a virus, we talked about DNA viruses and how they replicate. They have a proofreader or copy editor for replication, which helps limit errors or mistakes. RNA viruses did not invest in this proofreader or copy editor. So as they replicate, mistakes and errors can be made. Today, we're going to talk about variants, how these copy errors make a virus even more successful. Yeah, so sometimes those errors are things that are omitted, right? Letters that get skipped, or maybe extra letters are added in, or the order of this code. And that's really what we're talking about here is sort of like a computer code, but it's the code for viral replication. Sometimes that code just gets rearranged. Once mistakes like that are made, transcription errors are made, all the copies that come from that contain that same error and they might even add more to it. And only some of those mistakes or mutations are gonna be beneficial to the virus. When they are beneficial, when they help a virus make more of itself, then we're likely to see that repeated over and over and over again. And those have the potential to become variants, which is sort of like the word variety, right? There's variety in the way the code for that copy of the virus is written if you compare it to the original or native version. When those varieties start showing up in people as illnesses, they might be recognized as a new variant. Mutations repeated make variants, and variants that succeed get noticed. So I'm going to give you a little bit more of a background on viruses. Remember that viruses can only replicate inside a host cell. They only care about making more copies of themselves. They have a genomic sequence of over 30,000 characters, so mistakes can be made. When I was in grade school, I got in trouble because I threw an eraser, and I had to write on the chalkboard, I will not throw an eraser at Kate, 100 times. 26 characters, very easy. But by the end, I was writing, I will not throw Kate at an eraser. I made a mistake. Imagine if I had to write that 30,000 characters 100 times. Here's where the mistakes can be made. Some of these mistakes or mutations don't end up as new variants. They kind of hit that viral dead end. But what does success mean for a variant? More copies of itself. And what can happen when a variant is successful? It could spread more easily. Or it could have more symptoms like coughing and sneezing. It could be harder to treat. 
or it may cloak itself, making it harder for your immune system to recognize and address it. Viruses are just happy to sit there and make copies of themselves, kajillions of copies of themselves, and spread them out to unsuspecting people as hosts. That's what success can mean for a viral variant. Kajillions, huh? Is that an actual amount? Yes, it is. Scientifically defined as a truckload. <laughs> Yuck. So viruses succeed when more hosts get sick. And a variant is when we should start to pay attention. Like when those smart lab people we keep talking about start to see the same version of a genetic code in more and more and more sick people. Lather, rinse, repeat, just keep going. As we start to talk more about variants, it is important to understand a few key terms. One of the first terms is viral load or viral burden. This is the amount of virus we can find in you typically measured in one milliliter of body fluid. If you remember back to your high school chemistry days, one milliliter of fluid is equal to 10 drops of fluid. That's if you were paying attention that day. So each virus has a specific host cell. It can be in your blood, your saliva, or sputum. For the SARS-CoV-2 virus, which causes COVID, it likes to hang out and replicate in the upper respiratory tract. We know that because we can diagnose it by swabbing. The amount of SARS-CoV-2 virus in the specimen from the back of your nose or throat could contain 10,000 to 10 million copies of virus in every milliliter. That's a whole lot of virus coming out when you're coughing, sneezing, or even breathing. All this comes from the SARS-CoV-2's favorite host cell in the upper respiratory tract. Yeah, when you wear a mask, the inside layer gets wet, right? Well, that moisture that you feel in your mask is what's leaving our respiratory tract all the time. We can actually see it when the weather's cold, right? You can see your breath in front of you. But it happens even when it's warm outside. So... If you have something like COVID-19, then all of that microscopic water can contain the virus. And that's where you'll see the infectious dose. The infectious dose of a virus is how many copies of the virus it takes to make us sick and how many copies need to be inhaled or to enter our bloodstream to induce illness in a person. Right now, we don't know what the infectious dose for COVID is. We don't know exactly how many copies you need to inhale to make you sick or whether that changes with the variants that are being detected. It's hard to figure out the cause when you're dealing with the effects. So now that we're all on the same page about what a variant is and how they're successful, let's look at how they're named. We should start by recognizing that watching for new variants, reading the genomic sequences, viruses, and trending that data is super important and can't be done just anywhere. So the lab you went to to get that swab up your nose is probably not the same place that's doing this type of genomic sequencing. It takes specialized equipment and staff, and some places are better able to watch for these changes than others. For instance, you may have heard about the first variant that was identified in the UK. Well, they have a great public health system and a lot of labs that are looking for this kind of information. Work's being done right now in the United States so we can strengthen our own network of labs that can do this kind of work. You can't find what you're not looking for. So once these variants are seen, the question becomes, how does it make the virus act? Does it change the behavior of a viral infection? So these variations in the genetic code of the virus get named in lots of ways, depending on what data is being looked at and who's doing the looking. The letters and numbers you've probably heard of, things like 
B1.1.117 are the pango or pangolin names. Sometimes you may hear about a variant referred to from where it was discovered, like in the UK or the South African variant. There's also the Global Science Initiative designation and the next strain. And now we have a new naming system, the WHO names. We have the B.1.1.7, the B.1.351, the P1, all these things. Those are variants listed in the United States as variants of concern, and we have lots of variants of interest. And we're going to go over those designations, interest and concern, in just a minute. So the letter and number combinations come from our laboratorian friends who've identified that viral family tree. So the letters indicate lineage. The numbers represent the descendants. Changes in the code come from the points or periods in the names, kind of like the Old Testament list of parentage. David begot Samuel, who begot Jebediah, etc. When we name these viruses, we use a letter for it, for the original virus, and a number for its descendants. B begets B.1, who begets B.1.1 for the variants. Those letters and numbers identified by our smart laboratorian friends tell how the genetic code has evolved for that variant. It allows scientists to follow the viral family tree. Yeah, those are the pangolin or pango lineages of the variants. And we have a link to these very cool open source websites that track variants worldwide and where you can actually see their movement around the globe. Very cool if you're a nerd like we are. But I agree. Those letters and number combinations are a lot to keep up with, and it's not just Trish and I that think so. The World Health Organization has decided to give variants a much simpler naming system. The WHO names will go through the letters of the Greek alphabet, which I had to look up, by the way, for this new, well, really an additional simpler name. So they keep the other names for the benefit of the lab, but for the benefit of the rest of us, we're going to get a simple name. So far, we have the B.1.1.7 as alpha, which is much easier to say. The B.1.351 is now the beta, and the P1 is now gamma. The B.1.617.2 is known now as the delta variant. The first variant noted that demonstrated increased transmissibility was found in the UK, and you might have heard about it as the UK variant, so that became the alpha. The second one, found in South Africa, becomes the beta. Then we have the P1 by the pango name, or the third letter of the Greek alphabet now, gamma, that first caught on in Japan and Brazil. And to finish up the list, we have the Delta variant, which started in India. And the last, at least so far, is the Epsilon, the fifth family of variations that was first identified in samples from California. Remember, these spontaneous mutations of the virus that can lead to variants can and do happen everywhere all the time. So the disparity between Brazil and Japan isn't that strange. It's like two people randomly winning the lottery with the same numbers in two different locations. It's rare, but it happens. It's viral Powerball. A viral mutation can happen anywhere at any time in more than one place. Yeah. None of them were restricted to the place where they were first found, and nothing says these successful changes to a virus won't just pop up anywhere. They can and they will. We will have more. And that's another good reason to separate those identifiers, right? Viruses don't stay put. So the place names are interesting, but they don't tell us much. And the pangolin names, those letters and numbers, tell the lab people a lot. They don't tell the rest of us very much. So now at least we have some simple names. Simple, if you know the Greek alphabet, I guess. And that's probably something we should all learn. 
So you may be asking yourself, why does any of this matter to us? Why do we care that there's something called the Delta variant? Well, another way to categorize the variants is exactly that. Their effect on us. How the collective mutations change the way the virus acts. Making people sicker, spreading faster. We're going to go through the list. But there are three categories, sort of like a hierarchy of worry, right, of how we specify these variants. Wow, Jill, I feel like I'm on viral jeopardy. I'll take the first category, variants of interest. Variants of interest are just what they say. They interest us. It's trending. We're starting to pay attention to it. We may start to see an increase in cases or locations. It has specific genetic markers that makes it distinct. These markers make it easier for us to see how this variant may react. And knowing the markers of a variant of interest can give us a heads up if we may see them in another location. Some attributes of a variant of interest include potentially changing the way the virus reacts to treatments, making it harder to diagnose. We could see an increase in transmissibility or a change in disease or symptoms. It could possibly neutralize antibodies that were developed if somebody had the disease or they've been vaccinated against it. It could change the way it binds or receptor binding. It could change the way the virus enters the cell by changing the lock and key, or it could stick more easily to the host cell. We have six variants of interest at this time that now have these Greek letter names. Epsilon, Eta, Iota, Zeta, Kappa, and Lambda. So that's the first level, when we're just interested in these variants. The second level are variants of concern. And for these, we're talking about variants that have actually demonstrated some of the possibilities that Trish just went through, like an increase in transmissibility, more severe disease. That might be more hospitalizations or increased deaths. It might be more symptoms. It may also be a significant reduction in neutralization by our antibodies, so our ability to fight off an infection. A variant might also have mutations in tiny bits of its genetic structure that we were using in the lab to identify it. So that can lead to diagnostic test failures. So right now we have alpha, beta, gamma, and delta as variants of concern, at least in the United States. You know, Jill, science is scary. Talk about daunting. Let's talk about variants of high consequence. Lately, a frequently asked question has been, does my vaccine still work against variants of concern? Until now, absolutely. But when the vaccine is no longer effective or vaccinated people start to become ill, a variant of concern could turn into a variant of high consequence. Attributes of a variant of high consequence include diagnostic testings could no longer recognize these variants. Treatments could have decreased effectiveness, or in some cases, they could be no longer effective. Or the virus is spreading so fast, we just can't contain it. This is going to have a deep impact on our public health systems. It will require notification to the WHO and to the CDC. We need to implement measures quickly to try to contain or reduce the variants of high consequence. Good news is... Currently, there are no SARS-CoV-2 variants that have risen to the level of high consequence. And on that good news, let's just quickly review what we've gone over today. Variants of interest have mutations that need to be watched and have the potential to get worse. Variants of concern are those that are actively demonstrating some of those characteristics, like spreading faster or making people sicker or whatever. 
And luckily, so far, none of those variants have gotten bad enough to warrant the level of high consequence, the highest level for variants. And that's where we're going to leave off for today. Our next conversation, we're going to finish up our viruses, mutations, and variants Oh My series with some Oh My math. Doesn't that sound exciting? I do love math, Jill. (laughs) Just to give you a preview about how math relates to all this, we're going to talk about what it means when we say a variant is 50% more contagious. For more resources about today's topic or to find out more about NeTech, please find us on the web at NeTech.org. We hope you'll join us for future podcasts on a wide range of topics from healthcare worker safety to personal protective equipment, and even more about infectious diseases of all kinds. Additionally, if you have any questions or comments for Trish and I, or ideas for future shows, please feel free to contact us at info at Until next time, I'm Jill Morgan. And I'm Trish Tennell. We'll see you next time on Transmission Interrupted. You've been listening to Transmission Interrupted, the podcast series from NeTech, the National Emerging Special Pathogens Training and Education Center. Learn more at NeTech.org.